Well, today we are actually going to continue to uh, carry on from last week talking about that topic of revival. And really, we're just going to kind of build upon what we did last week. We're going we're gonna to re-emphasize, I should say, uh, the points that we covered. Uh, but we're going to do it in a little different manner. Today I'm going to take you to the book of Nehemiah. And I, I, I got to tell you, uh, the first time many moons ago uh, that I set my heart to really study the book and study it out, take time to look it over, uh, I was shocked. I was stunned by what I found. There was many things, of course, that I learned within going through the book of Nehemiah. But one of the things that struck me that stood out one of the most was, oh my, the book is about revival. This is about revival. It gave an amazing picture, literally, how revival unfolds from the beginning all the way when it's brought to fruition, when we see victory and power, when the word of the Lord comes to pass. It's just an awesome, awesome thing. And within it, as we, as we get into this story, we're also going to see what happens when that, that nuclear bomb of revival detonates and it goes out, and the shockwave goes out, and the heat is going out, we're actually going to see that there is a time of blowback. There is a time of blowback. And this is getting into something I had mentioned last week of expectations. There are specific expectations. If I'm going to stand up here and, and cry out for revival and to encourage you to pray for revival in this community, there are things that we need to be careful of, that we need to be wary of. And so we're going to see that as we go through the book of Nehemiah today. And just to put your mind at ease, no, we will not be covering the entire book today. <laughs> we, <laughs> you would not be going home. Uh, all right, <laughs> with that said, let's get right to it. Uh, in Nehemiah 1, verse 1, we begin at the beginning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, which, if you're not familiar, this is the ninth month of the year in the Jewish calendar. Okay? In the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel... Now, this just kind of poses a bit of irony, I think, uh, considering we just celebrated the last couple days the feast or the festival of Purim, right? With Esther. Well, where did that take place? Where was Esther? Susa, or Shushan, the citadel. So what does this tell you? Where is Nehemiah the Jew? He's a Jew. Where is he? He is in Persia. He's in the heart of Persia, in the citadel. And actually, as you're going to find, he is serving the king of Persia. That's, moving on to verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Yehuda, and I asked them concerning the Yehudim, who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Yerushalayim. Now, this is fascinating, and you need to ask yourself, it begs the question, why, oh why, is Nehemiah, Nehemiah, why is he asking about the state of his brethren, who he talks about something, of them surviving the captivity, okay, and not just that, is what is the state of Jerusalem? He wants to know these things. Well, we need to fill in a little historicity here, we need to fill some gaps, Taking you back, there was a nation that arose known as Babylon. Most of us are familiar with Babylon. They started to literally become the world superpower, stretching, stretching out its, her legs, if you will, farther and farther, imposing its power and authority over other nations, one of which was the kingdom of Judah. Babylon finally reached Judah. And within a period of over ten years... They took full-out vengeance upon Judah. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They completely destroyed the temple. And we know from Scripture that the king, uh, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he actually stripped all these holy artifacts out of the temple, and he brought them back to Babylon. He put these artifacts that were in the holy temple of God, he puts them in his temple, the temple of his gods. Now, you've got to see... The imagery that's being posed there, when you see this imagery of the holy things of God being placed in uh, the temple of demons, if you will, what does that tell you? That was the spiritual effect, that was the reality of what Judah had done. They had embraced syncretism, they had embraced paganism, they were mixing the holy things with the unholy. 
Therefore, Lord brought destruction upon Judah. They had killed the innocent. There was much blood shed. It talks about Manasseh shedding much blood. But that's not all the king of Babylon does. Then he uproots the Yehudim. He uproots the Jews of the land, and he takes them out of the land. He brings them into captivity. Now, not long after this, you get into 539 B.C., another empire rises up to take the seat of the global superpower known as Persia or Medo-Persia. And here you have, with all these captives being taken captive and being brought into these provinces of Babylon, well, when Persia rises up, what happens to these captives? They get absorbed into the Persian Empire. All right? So they get absorbed into the Persian Empire, and here we sit, now we understand why Nehemiah is asking about the well-being of Jerusalem, about the well-being of the captive, uh, those who have been held captive, the survivors. So now you get a little bit of backdrop. Moving on to verse 3. And they said to me, so here's the report, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So these, these men, they report back to Nehemiah that the condition of Jerusalem, it's horrible. It's terrifying. The wall is broken down. The, the hearts of the people are crushed. They're in dismay because the gates are still burned with fire. You know, when, when you hear this description, I, I want you to see that this entire scene that's being described here, it is symbolic. It's symbolic of the relationship of what happened between Elohim and his people. The fact that the walls are broken down and, and the gates are burned with fire, this is a physical manifestation of a spiritual condition. That's all this is. It's a physical manifestation of a spiritual condition. And this is not how it's supposed to be. This is why Nehemiah is vexed. This is why his brethren are vexed. This is not how it's supposed to be. Now, we need to internalize this. Because I want you to see, we only get into the first couple verses of the book of Nehemiah. And I'll tell you what happened to me. It drew me in. This is an Esther scenario, if you will. The book sucked me in because I already realized, already saw on a spiritual level, how much this applies to us. The reality of it. For example, when you allow sin into your life, you start embracing the things of the world, the fleshly lusts, and you start syncretism, mixing in all these pagan practices, and you, what happens? Isaiah 59 says, sin separates you from your God. And you are literally, what happened to the children of Israel? You're brought into captivity. And the wall of your mind and the, and the gates of your heart turn into ash and rubble. This is the reality. There is a deep, deep spiritual connotation within this story. There is an, there, this story is applicable to every single one of us today. So we're going to read it very, very carefully, or at least parts thereof. Now as we continue, you're going to see how Nehemiah responds. He's going to respond to this, this horrible report, this physical manifestation of a spiritual condition. And in verse 4 we read, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see what happened here? When Nehemiah had the revelation, it was the revelation of the reality of the situation, it did something to him. It melted his heart. It broke him. He had this real place of brokenness before the Lord. He weeps. Look at this. He weeps. He mourns. He prays, he fasts. What would you call this response? If you're familiar enough with the scriptures and you're spending time studying, what would you call this response? I'll tell you what I would call it. I call this revival. This is the beginning of revival. This is where we need to be as a community. Mourning, weeping, praying, and fasting. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you the truth of the situation as it was revealed to Nehemiah, that the wall was broken down, that the gates were burned with fire, when the Holy Spirit reveals to you the sin that is in your life, the things that are holding you in bondage, that are keeping you captive, this is the response. 
This is the response that we need to have. We need to have a brokenness before the Lord. Mourning, weeping, praying, and fasting. It's the secret. Now, continuing on, we're going to get to see Nehemiah's prayer. And you're going to want to pay very close attention to this prayer because there are elements here that are going to reveal how to get God to answer us. This is one of the marvelous things about Scripture that I love. The more you dig into it, and we, t- we touched on this a little bit in The Art of Spiritual Warfare, the more you study the Word, you'll find there are prayers. This book is riddled with prayers of men crying out to God. And I'm going to tell you, we're not going to do it today, but I could show you all these prayers, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Nehemiah, whether it's Hezekiah, and they all do the same thing. There is a great treasure trove of wealth within these prayers teaching us how to pray with power and how when we go to pray, we know these are not just words, but we're going to get God to answer us or he's going he's to have mercy upon us. He's going to lend us his ear. Look at this prayer in verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Talk about a way to start out a prayer exaltation, lifting his name high. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now this is fascinating because this is a very important point to do in your prayers. Remind the Lord what he said. Remind the Lord what he promised. Remind him of his word. He knows there's power in his word. We should know there is power in his word. And what's fascinating, he's actually quoting places scattered throughout the Torah, but you also find the statement, as you quoted today, this is in the Ten Commandments. He shows mercy to those who love him and those who keep his commandments. That's right out of the Ten Commandments. Now he goes on and says in verse 6, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open." that you may hear my prayer, uh, the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. I want to stop here, because this goes to something that Yeshua points out in the New Testament, uh, and, and Paul as well. Paul's saying, pray without ceasing, First Thessalonians 5.17. Yeshua says, pray and do not lose heart, Luke 18.1. There's a concept over and over that the Jewish people in the first century, they understood. Something about praying. And that is you pray day and night. You don't sit down, you don't kneel down and say your little five-second prayer and expect a result. You go to Luke 11. You do not give up. You pray day and night. You are relentless. Is that how we are praying now? I'm going to tell you, let me be the first to raise my hand. Absolutely in times past, this is not my prayer pattern. And that is utterly falling short. Lately, yes, I am in deep meditation now. I'm where I need to be. And the the Word of God is coming alive on on a whole other level for me, where I'm seeing the power of the living God, how to invoke the power of God according to His will, according to His way. And this is one of the ways right here. Constant meditation on Him. Constantly speaking to Him. Very, very powerful concept. So he says, that you may hear your prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. And we continue. For the children of Israel, your servants. So he's petitioning on behalf of his brethren. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. One of the most important criteria of us going to Scripture and producing revival, seeking God to hear from us, is what he just said right here. He is confessing the sins, not just his own sins, but those of even his own family. Total humility. And actually, he's doing something that the Torah instructs. This is something that the Torah instructs all over the place, that we are to confess our sins. You go to the New Testament, it says this very same thing. Read 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the truth of the matter. Moving on to verse 7, he goes on. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moshe. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But, and see, what's Nehemiah doing? He's reminding what the Lord said. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So we see Nehemiah in his prayer, in all reality, he's following. If you remember from last week, he is following the instructions for revival. That is what's happening here. He's getting right with God. Step one, get right with God. Confess your sins. Appeal to the Lord out of a broken heart and remind Him of His promises. This prayer is a powerful example of how to start revival. This is how we really need to get into it, to be prayer warriors. We pray like this. We approach the Lord with this kind of heart. And it is guaranteed. It's a scriptural promise. The Lord will hear. The Lord will restore the Lord will revive. That is what will happen. Now, he continues on in his prayer in verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of of this man, this man, for I was this, the king's cupbearer. Who is he referring to? Who is this man? This is none other than the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is asking for favor. He's petitioning the Lord, give me favor in his eyes. Why? What do you mean, give me favor in his eyes? Why is he asking favor? What is he asking for? Well, here's the thing. As you continue in the story, and I didn't put it up here, Nehemiah is asking to have favor in his eyes so that Artaxerxes sends him home. Nehemiah wants to go home. He wants to go home and he wants to build Jerusalem. And what happens? Well, what do you know? Because of the prayer that was laid down, because of the heart of Nehemiah, because of the will of God, God grants him his petition. He gives him favor in the eyes of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes doesn't just send him back home. He sends them back home with the power and the authority of the king to make this happen. Talk about revival. This is revival. This is the power of God. It's miraculous. There was a British evangelist who, he lived in the same time period as the gentleman I mentioned last week with this three-step process, this R.A. Torrey. He went by the name of Gypsy Smith. And um, he was a nickname. His real name was Rodney. But he was asked a similar question to that of R.A. Torrey. And I, I want to show you what that question and answer was because it applies to what we just saw happen with Nehemiah. And this is what he was asked. How do you start revival? And the answer he gave, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, draw a chalk mark around yourself, and ask God to start the revival inside that chalk mark. When he has answered your prayer, the revival will be on. When he has answered the prayer, the revival will be on. Let me tell you something, this is exactly what we just saw Nehemiah do. Metaphorically, he literally did this. He went in his room, he humbled himself before God as though he drew a chalk line around, petitioning his God day and night, asking, which he was, he was asking for revival, asking that he might have favor in the eyes of the king. And what happens? The Lord heard his prayer. And according to Gypsy Smith, well, what did that mean? Once the Lord answered his prayer, revival was on. Revival began. The power of God was initiated. Now, as we continue in our story, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. I want to, I want to take you to the point where Nehemiah, he arrives in Jerusalem. 
And he begins to do the work. And this is, this is all by the hand of God, a miraculous hand of God. And this is where we're going to see uh, what can happen when that bomb of revival detonates. There are things that, are, that, that can take place that can be very, very troublesome. And this is what we read, going to uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. I want you to understand something. You know, I'm telling you, we need to pray for revival. We need revival in this community. Understand, when revival hits, it will awaken the forces of evil. Spiritual hosts of wickedness will respond to this detonation of revival. And do you know why? Because revival is a direct assault, a direct attack against the kingdom of Hasatan. It is a direct attack against their power, their authority, all those strongholds that they have built in your life, but the bondages and the addictions and the depression. All of these things get wiped out in a blink of an eye as the Holy Spirit moves. And I'm telling you right now, I have seen it with my own eyes. And I haven't just seen it with my own eyes, I've experienced it. And not some kooky move of the Holy Spirit again. An authentic move where bondages are broken literally instantaneously when you feel the Holy Spirit come upon you. It is powerful. But make no mistake, when revival hits, the kingdom of Satan will respond in fury. And they will come and they will attempt to distract, to disrupt, to destroy a beautiful work of God. The last thing Satan wants to lose, just think about this, the last thing he wants to lose is worshipers. That's what he's after. He's been after your heart. He's after your heart to allure you, to seduce you. And when he has you, you're under his authority and his power. You are his. See, but when revival goes throughout the land, when the word of the Lord goes throughout the land, when the forgiveness of Yeshua hits town, nothing can stand, nothing can fight, nothing can come against the might of the Lord Yeshua. Look at what Revelation 12 says, and we've covered this. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Oh, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of the Messiah, Yeshua. You know, let me tell you something. It's very simple. Those who are following Yeshua, who have confessed them with, with their mouths, and they've believed in their heart, and they've turned their back on their old master, on Hasatan, and they refuse to obey him, to be allured into the seduction of all the lusts of the flesh. They're tired of it. They want holiness. They want righteousness. They want to walk in the commandments of God. That is revival. That's true revival. That's the fruit of revival. And what does it say? It says he becomes enraged. Enraged. It will. Revival. A turning, repentance, restoration will awaken the forces of Hasatan. Going back to chapter 4, verse 1. Look at what happened here. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall because it's revival, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Sanballat is a very picture of Hasatan, of his kingdom, of his ammo, of his moving. This is who he is. This is Sanballat. He's doing the same thing that his master does. He becomes enraged. Moving on to verse 2. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, Now here comes the mocking people. What are these feeble Jews doing? In other words, they're so weak and pathetic. They have no strength. They're nothing. Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Now listen to what he says. Will they revive? I mean, this is the word that's actually used. Will they revive in the Hebrew, chaya? Chaya is life. Chaya is to bring to life. It's to bring it to life, to be born again, if you will. Will they bring to life, or will they have a revival of the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned. You just think about this statement. Now, 
you know, I, I do want to say this. Let me first say this. There is something about the statement that, in a sense, I agree with. It's only one little thing, so listen to me carefully. Sanballat is bringing to everyone's attention, to his own army amongst his men, he's bringing to their attention that there is no way that the work that they have set out to do to literally bring the stones to life, to turn this ash heap into beauty, there's no way to do it. It would have to be miraculous. It would have to be a miracle. And I'm going to tell you, you need to pick up on what they're saying because this component is true. The work that they were performing was completely miraculous. Only the power of God could accomplish this. No, they're not going to be able to fortify themselves. Yes, they are weak and feeble apart from their God. And no, they have no power to revive the stones. Only God has that power. Let me share with you why there's more to this. There's a deep spiritual connotation that I want you to pick up here. As we get to the New Testament, it's interesting that Peter, in his first epistle, he talks about stones, if you will, reviving stones, in the very same context that Sanballat is portraying here. And it's very, very powerful. And I, I want to take you there and show you this because it's going to internalize this whole scenario. It's going to make it real and personal to you. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to Yeshua as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as what? As living stones, living, brought to life. Chaya. We've been brought to life. We've been renewed. We've been born again. These living stones, and what are they? Are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Messiah, Yeshua. So the fact that Sanballat is mocking Nehemiah, scoffing at him, much like Hagar's son did, Ishmael, as he scoffed Israel, right, or Isaac, as he made that scoffing toward the promised one, the promised child. So we see this is literally happening right now, right here. Mocks them, will you revive the stones of Jerusalem back in life? Over and over again, Satan is a mocker. Right? You look at this statement, it really does carry this, this deep connotation. It represents the restoration of God's people. The revival of God's people. And again, the work is absolutely miraculous. And for us today, that happens for us through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. A miraculous rebuilding where we as stones, we are being brought to life and we are being built up. See, this whole thing that we're reading of revival in Nehemiah, what is unfolding, it all applies to our situation now. It's all applicable. So, with that said, I want to warn you. Let me, let me add this before we continue. I want to warn you, when you turn back to God, as I mentioned, expect Satan to come and try to discourage you. He's going to come out in full vengeance. He's going to mock you. He will come attempt to push his little nasty whisper campaign in your ear, whispering to your heart uh, that your desire... And your ability to walk with the Lord in righteousness is impossible. To walk with Yeshua in righteousness, that is a fantasy. It will never happen. You're wasting your time. Just give up. He'll come and tell you that your sins are too great. That you just can't be forgiven. Your past is too bad. There's too many bad things that you have done if you're listening to Simon as he spoke in between the songs. He was alluding to this very thing. He was getting to this point of this is what Satan does. He wants you to see yourself as non-repairable. Your damaged goods, you cannot be healed. There's no hope for you. You're beyond forgiveness. To which the Apostle Paul responds, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of the Messiah, Yeshua. 
This is the promise. We rest on the promises of God. If you began with Yeshua, do not allow Sanballat, the Rashakeh, Hasatan, whatever name you want to put on our adversary, do not allow him to come and tell you the Lord will not complete the work, that there's no way that these stones can be revived because it is a lie. You give your heart to Yeshua and you will experience the power of God. It is real. Now as we continue, we're going to see another man step up alongside of this Sanbalat and he's going to dole out some more perverse rhetoric. And this is what is said. Now Tovia, uh, Tovia the Ammonite, was beside him and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And so here, here it is again, this rhetoric coming on. It doesn't matter. You guys can work all you want. It's a joke. You're laughable. Look at yourselves. Look at what you're doing. What a waste of time. This is what the enemy does. It's a calculated, strategic approach to come and destroy us, to prevent us from walking out and walking in the power of God. Well, after Nehemiah is confronted with this, I guess you'd call it a discouragement campaign, he turns to the Lord, he cries out to him, and look at what he says. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. You do not want Nehemiah praying this of you. Okay? This is as intense as it gets. And actually, this is kind of a mere replica. If you like the New Testament, you like the epistles of Paul, go home and read the last chapter in Paul's second epistle to Timothy. And he talks about Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. May the Lord repay him for what he has done. Very similar prayer. That, that should send chills up and down your spine when you hear righteous men of God praying this way. Moving to verse 6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. Look at this. For the people had a mind to work. They had the mind of the Lord. They had the confidence. They had the faith. They had the faith to move in revival. Again, as I was saying, this is what it takes. The faith to move. This is the mind that we need to have. This is what drove these men to succeed. It was the mind to do the work, the mind of the Lord. It's one of the primary keys of success just in our life in general is the time that the Lord allots you on this earth. One word, perseverance. The perseverance of the saints, the endurance. It will take endurance to see this through. And when we have our priorities in order... I'm going to tell you, we cannot be stopped. We cannot. It's impossible. God's force, who can be against us? Now, as we continue, we're going to see that the enemy, he doesn't give up so easy. Moving on to verse 7. Now, it happened when Sanballat, Tovia, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Yerushalayim were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And what happened? And all of them conspired together. See, I'm just going to have an honest moment. There, there was a time in my life uh, years ago where I had this preconceived notion. Don't ask me why. I don't know. It's what I contrived in my mind. This preconceived notion that Satan was totally incompetent. He's disorganized. Any attack that he might have is a complete fluke. It's just more of a by chance. I mean, this is, this is kind of how I saw him because he was such a joke in my eyes because all the because of the glory and the power of Yeshua, I just looked at him that way. I want you to understand this. Satan is not incompetent. He is not incompetent at all, and he is well organized. And he knows how to gather his host for battle. And he knows how to come and attack us. And he knows how to calculate these calculated response. When you respond strong in this way, you think you're done. He comes at you to a weak spot you didn't even know you had. He is calculating. I don't say this again, uh, you know, going back to what I already said. 
I don't share this to instill fear into you. I instill this to know how much ba- how bad you need your Messiah because you are not equipped to fight him. Yeshua will conquer him. Yeshua will protect us, but we've got to be under that shadow of that wing. So here we see he concerts his effort. He, they're, they're conspiring together and we continue uh, to come and attack Yerushalayim. And what are they going to do? Create confusion. My, oh my, isn't that interesting? Because we know God is not the author of confusion, according to the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Who is? Hasatan. He is the author of confusion. So let me ask this question. As we press into revival, and a revival starts to erupt in this place, what can we expect to happen? What is the blowback? Expect Satan to come to sow confusion. And I'm just going to tell you, and I'm not going to spend, I could, I could spend much longer on this topic, but I'm not going to go there. Again, growing up, you know, my parents were part of healing crusades. And being in the AG movement, we went to revivals. And we saw these things. And they happened in my own church. And I got to tell you, and I mean this, many of the people that are in these things, and some of these revivals are completely authentic and pure and beautiful. And a real move of God. I'm going to tell you, I personally, as a teenager, experienced a real revival amongst roughly 300 teens who fell on their face and prayed before God. And there was no show. It was not a spectator sport. There was no rolling around. 300 teens falling on their face before God. And the power of the Holy Spirit moved. And I was supernaturally healed. That is truth. I say it anything different, I would be a liar. I literally went to my knees and all I was doing was praying Nehemiah's prayer. Not the exact prayer, the same content. Lord, I have sinned, I have been a sinner, and I'm crying out to you. Now here's the thing, at the time I had a bulge coming out of the back of my neck. I never knew what it was because it didn't hurt, it never bothered me, but if I was just standing here, you'd be able to see it. And as I was kneeling down, repenting before God, that thing starts spinning in my neck clockwise. I'll never forget it. I could feel it spinning. No pain whatsoever. I felt the power of the Holy Spirit come upon me. It was nuts. And I was so scared, I didn't have the boldness to go back and reach my hand back to feel what I knew was going on. It was like the finger of God was doing this in my neck and spinning it. Now, keep in mind, I never went to the doctor this. I don't know what it was to this day. I don't know why it was taken away. No one was praying for me. All I know is the Holy Spirit came upon me in the midst of a sea of kids that were crying out to Yeshua, to Jesus. And when I finally, when, it, when I felt it was over, it stopped, and I put my hand back there, there was nothing there. That is what I want you to experience. That is exactly what I'm talking about. If you want to understand what real revival is, that's what it is. It's not the hundreds and even thousands of videos that you can go on YouTube right now and look at crazy church revivals. Or I even showed a video to my wife last night, and it just brought me back. It brought me back to what I grew up in and what I saw many times. Not that I didn't experience the authentic, but what I saw is a lot of confusion. Men, grown men in suits... Grown men crawling around like dogs, barking like dogs, crawling around. It was absolutely bananas, okay? People flopping around on the floor. People just falling all over each other. This one time, this is what I saw. There was like, it was, it was confusing. A bunch of people, there had to be 12, 15 people, and you know, you have your altar calls and everyone comes up, and that's good. Everyone comes up, they want prayer, they want God. But then people start falling all over each other. They're bonking each other's heads. It's total chaos. You have pastors howling like a wolf. Because the Lord whispered in the ear, you need to howl like a wolf. I mean, these are the things that brought me back to experience all this. That is not revival. That is not what I'm talking about. But at the same time, people, when you hear the term revival, do not cringe. Because there are many people that are going there with broken hearts for the Lord. And you know what the Lord responds? What you need to understand is that expect Satan to show up. 
because he wants to come and cause confusion. And he does that by men, grown men, walking around barking like dogs. And people laughing hysterically, rolling around. Somebody, please, after service, show me where that is in Scripture. I get the talking donkey. I can get there. But I don't see any aspect of a lot of what we see in these revivals happening. And so I'm just putting this out there just to let you know this is not what we're going after. And I have watchmen on the wall in this building. We are not going to allow Satan to take over. That is not going to happen. But I'm telling you, we are going to open up so that the presence of God can come in. This is what we need. Charles Spurgeon has a really interesting commentary on crazy revivals. Now keep in mind, this goes back, okay? This is not a new uh, fad that began just, uh, you know, in the late 1900s. This goes back to the mid-1800s, things that Spurgeon himself saw. Listen to what his commentary on crazy revivals is. The utmost zeal for Christ is consistent with common sense and reason. Raving, ranting, and fanaticism are products of another zeal, which is not according to knowledge. We would prepare men for the chamber of communion and not for the padded room at Bedlam. No no one is more sorry than I that such a caution as this should be needful. But remembering the vagarities of certain wild revivalists, I cannot say less and I might say a great deal more. I want you to understand something. Spurgeon was not against revivals or revivalists. He was against the padded room at Bedlam, literally preparing the people for the nuthouse. Which you look at these things, and that's how it is. That's how some of these things look, right? God is a God of order. He's a God of power, and you will see the fruit. You will see the fruit of the Holy Spirit come out of this place. You will see love come out of this place. You will see forgiveness bitterness hatred hatred and bitterness will literally melt away from the love of yeshua this is powerful this is powerful stuff this is what we want i'm getting back to our story i'm getting in the back end here despite the enemies conspiring together to attack nehemiah uh, and attack the work being done uh even despite the the, the, the total confusion that they're sowing Uh, Look at how Nehemiah responds to all this. And again, this is a learning. This is how we learn. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. This is how Nehemiah responds as a man of God. As we press into revival, this is what we have to do. We have to be on guard. Put the watchman up day and night, prepared for any attack that might come. And just look at how the men who put their hand, who had the mind of the Lord to do the work of the Lord, look at how they worked. In verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. These men are armed for war. They are ready at the drop of the hat to deal with with the adversary. And this is exactly what we need to prepare for. This is what we need to do. Now, I want to jump ahead a couple of chapters as we get into the closing bit here. After Yerushalayim is restored and all the people are gathered together, the Lord's restored His people. He's brought them back from captivity. True revival has commenced. But as we continue uh, to read, we're going to find something happens. There is fruit this fruit that I was speaking of, fruit of revival, we're going to see some very peculiar fruit. Things begin to happen. And I want to point this out because this is going to give us some perspective in what is happening right now on a global scale. It's very fascinating. As we go to Nehemiah 8. Now all the people, what did they do? They gathered together as one man. They gathered together as one man. You know, part of the fruit of men that are broken and they're pushing into revival, they will collect together. It's the natural course. The Spirit of God will draw them together, and they will move as one. Read the book of Acts. 
And you don't have to get very far. As you get to Acts chapter 2, the power of the Holy Spirit comes down. They're anointed. The men hear, there's, there's tongues of fire. Men are speaking in foreign tongues. And the, and the men, other men that are from the diaspora, they're hearing the, the beautiful works of God in their own language. They understand what these men are saying. Absolutely incredible. What's the next thing that you read as you, as you go on? And they continued daily in one accord. Isn't that fascinating? One accord. Exactly what we see happening here. The effects of a true, powerful move of God, of revival. So now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Isn't that interesting? The people, the people, this is not the, the elders described, the people of the land are asking for the Torah. They want to hear from God. They want to hear, which is what is the Torah? It is the voice of God. See, here's the deal. They're tired of hearing from the adversary. They're fed up. They've had enough. And they know what happens when they listen to him. They're done. Now they want to hear from God. This is, this is a powerful effect of a true move of the Holy Spirit. People desire more of the Lord. This is natural, right? Natural response. Continuing on in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he read it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered and said, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. True worship, just total humility before God. Awesome worship to the Creator of heaven and earth. And moving on to verse 7. Also Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akuv, uh, Shabbatai, uh, Hudiah, uh, Messiah, uh, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, uh, Peliah, and the Levites got through that. And this, is what they, and this is what they said. This is what happened. They helped the people understand the law. And so there's revelation of God's Torah, of God's Word. And the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book of the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So the natural course of true revival is that people, they get deeper and deeper. The yearning, the desires to go deeper and deeper with God. To have that intimacy, that relationship, to literally hear from the voice of God. To put your ear up to the Torah. Now, as we continue, you're going to see the effects of what happens when people hear the voice of God. When they hear the Torah, literally speaking directly to them. In verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Do you understand the impact that the word of God has? It will cut you to the bone. It will cut you deep inside your heart. And you will have this, because here's what happens. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light into the path. And when it peers into our dark hearts, man, does it reveal a lot of wickedness and a lot of uncleanness and a lot of unforgiveness. It starts to reveal all these things. And this is why these people are weeping. Because now God is speaking directly to them and they're convicted. But here's why I highlighted this. But they tell them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. What day are they talking about? Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. This is the first day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. And so the leaders who have an understanding of Torah say, no, no, this is not the day to do this. This day has been sanctified. It's been anointed and blessed for you to come and rejoice with the God of Israel. This is a day so mourning turned to joy. I mean, the whole thing is so unbelievably prophetic and powerful. Listen to how Ezra responds to them. And in verse 10, then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
Isn't that amazing? I grew up singing this song in church. If you want joy, you must ask for it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And, and then I finally studied the book of Hebrew, or the book of Nehemiah, and I realized the joy of the Lord in my strength. What he was talking about, and the context he was talking about, was embracing the voice of God, embracing his holy convocations, his feast, his day, that we're to be joined to him, and his joy is my strength. Just a powerful concept. Moving on to 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. See, here's what's happening. When an anointing goes out, no one knows the things of God. Read First um, Corinthians chapter 2. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, what I'm telling you, you have no chance of understanding this book without the Holy Spirit. This is why we need the Spirit of God. Where was I? So because they understood the words that were declared, moving on to verse 13. Now, the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. So the leaders come back. They want to go deeper because they're the leaders. They need to be judges. They're going to have to know this on a very, very deep level. Moving on to verse 14. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is where I'm going with this. We're just going to bring this full circle. And this is what I want you to see. There is a revival of God happening on a global scale right now. It is called Messianic Judaism. And I'm telling you, the move began with Jewish believers. It's just so, it's amazing. You can go back to the first century. What was the move in the first century? It began with Jewish believers that spread out to Gentiles. What a coincidence. Messianic Judaism begins with God-fearing Jews confessing Yeshua as the Messiah. Interesting, they return back to Torah. And what do they do? They start keeping the feast. In this example of revival, we see what happens. They start keeping the festivals of God. Now, what do we see right now? There are churches all over the world right now, Christian churches, evangelical churches, even Lutheran churches, whose pastors are having conviction about the feasts. And they're starting to keep Passovers. And they're starting to hold Passover seders. And they're starting to try to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. All these things are happening. Open your eyes. Revival is moving because God is coming back. Yeshua is coming back, and he's coming back for one bride, and she is going to be pure and spotless. Amen?